0: Hello, brave listener, and welcome to Sound on Film, your local source for all the latest film reviews and greatest film news inside the Gene Snyder Freeway. This week, Stephen Carr, Dr. Andrew Cooper, and I discuss the Earth's destruction twice, once by Snow in the film Snowpiercer, and once by Primates in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. After that, I will interview Dr. Andrew Cooper about the University of Louisville's film minor, and we finish up by talking about some television news. Will this be our best show yet? You decide. This is Sound on Film. Okay, Dr. Andrew Cooper, welcome to Sound on Film. Well, thanks for having me here. Yeah, okay, so I know from your biography that you're an assistant professor and the next director of film and digital media studies at the University of Louisville. So I guess the obvious first question is what exactly is film and digital media studies at the University of Louisville?
1: And I wish that question had an obvious answer, but it doesn't. Um, The the easiest answer is that right now we have a minor in film and digital media studies, and it's a minor that that cuts across disciplines in the university. So um, I sort of teach a lot of the the core film classes that are in the humanities program, but we have uh, other programs participating. We have courses in communication. We have courses in modern languages like French and Chinese. Um, we have women's and gender study courses, all of which can be folded into the minor that, because they're courses that deal with film. Uh, so so it, it's, it's really cool for me because I'm, I'm an omnivore when it comes to intellectual subjects. And film touches on kind of everything. Um, so what UofL has done and, and what I'm stepping into is, is a program that deliberately is, is sneaking across boundaries and weaving together uh, something that I don't think uh, folks have, have seen much of before. It's
0: really interesting. So you, you talked a little bit about how film cuts across lots of different genres, and I think that gets into a little bit of what your interests are um, it by, just by going by what we know about you already. So, you know, you mentioned that you, you kind of tend towards a little bit more of the, the popular film genres that we talk about. I remember when I first started taking film classes, the first three films that we watched were Eight and a Half, uh, Persona, and then Killer of Sheep. So we didn't really, (laughs) you know, he said, the the film professor I had said, you know, he had to weed out the people who weren't really serious, which I think that you would look at as maybe not the most uh, advantageous way to do something like that. So talk a little bit about your philosophy and the types of stuff that you guys would study as texts in classes at U of L well,
1: well I, I I would never say that I'm weeding out anybody with Fellini or Bergman I um, I, I teach a class that includes both uh, eight and a half and and persona and and, and I love both of those films dearly uh, so so I'm not going to say I, the, the sheep film is my favorite um, but but in any case um, no I, there, there, there are a place for that I teach a film history course that is sort of the course you expect uh, from a college film history class and that I start with and with the silence and we talk about DW Griffith and, you know, what a loaded subject that is. Um, and then and then we, you know, we moved into Expressionism and then we do the sort of high modernist films like you're talking about. Um, and then I do fold in some more popular genres and we talk about that. We talk about, you know, why are these films the films that, you know, the critics get all excited about and why is, are the more popular films uh, generally uh, frowned upon by the critical community? And that becomes a major uh, catalyst for class discussion, at least the way I teach film history. And uh, I think students like it. Not everybody you can't please all the people all the time. Um, and then I also teach courses that are, that are devoted to the horror genre. Or I taught a course that was all about uh, sexuality in, in teen films. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think these are films that are reaching the masses, and therefore they're having an enormous uh, effect on, on culture and on the way we see ourselves. And so that's, that's the sort of thing that deserves study, too. I'm not, I'm not going to say that Eight and a Half and Persona aren't important films. Again, I love them. But they're not the whole story. And and if we leave out popular culture, we're leaving out what I think is the biggest part of the story. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so you, you talked a
0: little bit about some of the classes you teach, maybe some of the things that are a classic history of film class. And then maybe, uh, you know, you mentioned the teen sexuality class. Uh, what, if somebody is to enroll in the film minor, what can they expect as their course load?
1: There's a lot of freedom in the types of classes people can can put together, and so people who are looking for a, a more traditional sort of film education can certainly get that and, and take my more traditional film film history class and, and and work on the the canonical you know great directors across the world because we certainly we teach those, um, but we also have a lot of those cross disciplinary popular cultural co- classes. So, so there's a lot of freedom for students to design uh, what they want to study and pick and choose at this point there's that flexibility in terms of the types of films they can study but at least the way I envision film and digital media at the University of Louisville of course not everybody who takes these classes is wanting to be a filmmaker or wanting to be like I am a film critic and, and writer people like movies they want to develop their thinking skills and their writing skills and so on and so they can expect uh, to learn about you know using media you know I, I don't I don't grade people on their production abilities but people play with cameras in my classes Mm -hmm. and people play with with working on websites and blogs and things like that because those are all tools that are necessary for surviving in the film world um, but they're also tools necessary for surviving in just about every professional world these days that's an
0: interesting point and I think that's a point that maybe requires a little bit more discussion in that you know you talk about this as film and digital media studies yes Uh, so talk a little bit about how something that would be film and digital media studies would differ From, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago when you would only study film, everything that you would watch would be reel to reel or, you know, something like that. How has is, how is the, the genre evolved and how has the critical study of that genre changed in response to how the genre has changed?
1: Well, it's, it's, I mean, there is like a really heavy academic way to answer that question and there are some more practical ways to answer that question. I mean, in, in the heavier academic way, uh, the sort of advent of the digital and then the dominance of the digital, making celluloid more and more a sort of, sort of uh, choosy, artsy thing to do rather than the mainstream, which it was through most of cinema's history, uh, has created a crisis. Because what is the digital? I mean, technologically, the digital is, is is radically different from from analog filmmaking, and so how we think about the the digital image is, is so different that a lot of people say we can't even call celluloid film and digital video the same thing anymore. Um, so, so, so in a program like ours, you know, the the hunt for a name that allows us to keep talking about these objects that we want to study that now simultaneously exist in many cases in both celluloid and digital formats is to have that kind of hybrid of film and digital media. On the other hand, very few narratives, um, and, and, and I think this is true of Snowpiercer, uh, is, are contained by a single medium anymore. Absolutely. And so to limit uh, a study to a single medium is, uh, well, I don't think the way that thought needs to work in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, certainly true of, of Snowpiercer, and maybe even more interestingly, uh, not bound by one set of narratives within the same genre, which would be the same the story for the Planet of the Apes movie that we watched.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
0: But that brings me to an interesting point, which you know, you mentioned more popular genres, and you know, you you watch a lot of, or you you study horror movies and uh, comic book movies and stuff, and those kind of are based on the blend of genre. You know, the most famous Nosferatu and the whole fight with uh, Bram Stoker's estate and all that sort of stuff, all the way up to. You know the Avengers, and now we've got. I think we have four comic book films that are coming out this summer, and it's Sound on Films destined to review
1: them all. I'm pretty sure. I just saw the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy, and I got to admit I wasn't interested before, but I am now. And
0: I am really excited about that movie. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, you know, talk I, a little bit about how um how those the study of those types of films, um are have maybe been left behind in critical study, and why they're important to uh, to you
1: and uh, to the way that you would build this type of program? To say that academics are only now paying attention to that kind of thing would be wrong. I mean, there, there, there have been uh, critical and academic interests in, in these genres, for, for, uh, for people interested in these genres, for, for quite some time. Um, but I do think that in the, in the last 10, 20 years, uh, these genres have been getting more and more of their due. And there are a lot of historical reasons um, why they haven't. And specifically for film, uh, film has fought an uphill battle from the beginning uh, because, because, you know, it was even people who were making films in the early silent, silent eras treated it as a sort of throwaway entertainment. Very few people even wanted to think about it as an art form until much later in film's history and thus we've lost almost half of the silent eras production. Um, and so, I mean, in, in terms of the history of art, film is a baby, 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 baby. And and so part of a strategy for getting film respectability was to, to, to promote those, those, those artsier films like the ones you mentioned before, which again, I do love them, like Eight and a Half and Persona, that were blowing people's minds, because they're really, really hard to understand. And so that started getting people who were already invested in artsy literature to realize, oh wait, film can be really smart too. And and so there was this sort of distancing from the popular to, to, to get film accepted as a medium. Now, I think people f- pretty much accepted that film kind of won the 20th century, uh, and, and, and so that fight is over. And, and I think it's time to, to go back And think about like, you know, I've written a book about Dario Argento one of my 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 favorite horror directors And while he's always had a cult following I think it's time for for people to go back and realize he's not just one of the greatest horror directors But one of the most important directors of the 20th century.
0: Absolutely. Okay So as a professor at a university you you mentioned, uh, you know, you've written a book You've probably written several books um, so, talk about some of the projects related to film and digital media studies that you've published or that you're working on.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I alluded to the to the book on Dario Argento. Um, I tend to work on some 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 edgier stuff. So uh, I. Uh My next published essay is likely to be on one of the most controversial films in recent years, and that's a Serbian film. And if you've heard of it, you're cringing. And if you haven't, that's okay. Don't look it up. Um, It involves a bug. uh, No, Serbian film does not involve a bug. Um, Most people consider consider, uh, Serbian film to be a little bit more extreme than The Human Centipede, just to give you an idea.
2: The, The name of it is... Serbian film. It's a Serbian
1: film, yes. Oh. Yeah. Um, so, so I work a lot with, with very extreme horror, very extreme aesthetics. Um, but, you know, I also like you know, good mainstream American horror. I published a piece on uh, Cabin in the Woods along with um, some, some colleagues uh, last year and Slayage, the, uh, the Journal of, of Whedon Studies. Uh, yes, you mentioned Avengers before. So, right. of course, I've been a Whedon fan for, for, for many, many years. So I'm into that, too. Steve is a big fan of Cabin in the Woods, aren't you?
2: I am. I really like that movie.
1: I think, it, I think it's brilliant. And, it's uh, hilarious. It, it, it's hilarious, and it's gory, and it's smart. I mean, you know, what else do you want from 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 a horror movie? Well, there are other things, but but you know, it's it's got a lot of good stuff going on. So so I mean, I try to 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 point my work in a lot of different directions. I've even published on social media and in, in technical communication, which is you know not maybe as fun as horror movies, um, but it's important and it's related. Absolutely.
0: Well, uh, that's that's a very interesting wrap. So, uh, I guess at this point, maybe give uh, you know your thirty second to one minute pitch for a U of L student that was thinking about maybe taking some film classes or enrolling in the film and digital media studies minor, uh, but wasn't quite uh, ready to, to take the plunge. What would you tell them?
1: Well, uh, I would say if you're interested in the arts, of course, there's an, there's an innate attraction, but also, again, film and media studies isn't just about artistic expression or, or, or studying the arts, it's about uh, working with the media that basically run business in the 21st century and beyond. And so, no matter what you do in your life, uh, having a serious look at how these media work is likely to, to help you get ahead.
0: All right, thank you very much, Dr. Andrew Cooper. And for all of you U of L students that may be listening to this, I uh, hope you've uh, taken that into account. And uh, when you enroll in classes next time, uh, you take up a film class. Well, thanks. Right.
1: Passengers, this is not you. This is disorder. This is size
0: 10 chaos. This, see this? This is death. In this locomotive we call home, there is one thing
1: that's between our warm hearts and the bitter cold. Clothing, shields, no. Order. Order is the barrier that holds back the frozen death. We must all of us on this train of life remain in our allotted station. We must each of us occupy our preordained particular position Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is.
0: Set in a hypothetical future where humanity has all but been destroyed by geoengineering gone wrong, Snowpiercer tells the story of a group of people surviving on a class-divided train. The focus is on Chris Evans, who plays Curtis, a man who seems destined to lead the lower class who inhabit the back of the train in a revolution of sorts. The film tracks Curtis's progress through the train and all the drama and characters he meets along the way. Snowpiercer is directed and written by Jun-Hu Bong, is photographed by Kyung-Pyu Hong, and is edited by Steve M. Cho and Chenggu Kim. Okay, so Dr. Cooper, thank you for remaining with us um, as we're going to review some of these films. Uh, but first, we have to ask everybody uh, a question before they start, and you know you talked about comic book films being something that you were interested in and written about before right i haven't actually done a lot of that in my own research, but it is an interest okay so if you had to pick one comic book villain since Snowpiercer is based on a comic book who would you
1: who would you pick as your favorite? Oh gosh! You see, you no, know, this is this is something I know comic book movies, but I don't know comic books all that well. Oh, man, all of my answers are going to be so predictable. That's fun. Yeah, hold on. I'm Nothing
2: wrong with being predictable.
1: Well, I mean, see, like you know, I'm, in my brain, I am, I, I, I'm going through various incarnations of the Joker over the years. In my brain, I'm going through other comic book villains, and I feel like if I read more comic books, I'd have a better answer than the Joker
0: was not that true? If you watch more films, you'd have a better answer to what your favorite movie
1: was. Uh, that's that's okay. actually not true. So yeah, good point, good point, good point. That's fair. All right, I'll, I'll just say The Joker because he's a sadist, and but he has a smile about it. And, yes. and that's one of my most, you know, intellectually, that's one of, one of the things I'm very drawn to. That's, the thing about The Joker is
0: that you can't ever really go wrong by saying The Joker because even if it is kind of predictable, he's the best villain. I mean, he's just the most sadistic and villainous of all the villains. I have this, like,
2: slight obsession with carnivals and circuses. And so anything that is related to like clowns or anything of that nature really just draws me in instantly so he would probably be my favorite too
1: i, I was just facebooking with someone about the about the about the word chlorophobia yeah, they, it was actually i guess invented in the 80s but there's now a word for fear of clowns well stephen king and what was it it, it. it. yeah
0: pennywise oh my gosh yeah. and we all he, float down stephen, here stephen welcome Georgie. back to the show yes hi i should also say hi to you i guess you've hmm. already been participating but hello
2: yeah, I, I you know, I'm one of those people who jumps into the pool.
0: It's that's fine.
2: That's fine. No toes wet for me
0: So we're here to talk about snow piercer So I like to start off with a question very simply. Did you like the film? So both of you guys did you like it?
1: I I knew very little about it and then I was completely impressed. I loved it. Yeah, it was it was it was amazing
0: All right So we've got we've got positive reviews all around so this audience that's what you're in for you're in for some positive reviews So if you're in a bad mood Hopefully this will help cheer you up. So, I don't know. When I watched this film, I got to say, the first thing that jumped into my mind was the cinema du look films of, like, the, the 90s and the late 80s, kind of like Total Recall or like The Fifth Element or something like mm-hmm. that, that didn't take themselves too seriously and kind of had an aesthetic about them, but kind of probed at some deeper themes that were maybe not as apparent in the surface level narrative of the film. That was kind of what I thought. But I'm kind of curious as to what you guys, why did you like it? What was the first thing that you thought? Was it something about the way it was shot or the narrative itself or the story it told? Or what was it that you guys liked about the film?
2: I just, I felt like it was very thought out and complete. And for starters, I mean, I think it looked really good. Like just the cinematography was really good. Also, I think it's really funny that we're talking about Snowpiercer and you're saying that our reviews are going to cheer you up because... Whenever I went to see that movie, I did not leave the theater very cheerful, you know. It's probably fair. Was not that kind of movie. No,
1: <laughs> no, no you know, I I, I was wondering, I was like, hey, okay, why didn't they do a bigger marketing push for this film in the U.S.? And I was like, well, okay, maybe maybe most Americans aren't ready for this. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's a film that operates on 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 several different emotional registers as well as a really stunning visual register. And while I agree with you know, you know the the sort of comparison to early Basan and, and um, you know the cinematic look of um, I'm blanking on. Uh, uh, I've been a uh, director of Diva and those other films that were around that time. Yeah, they're a French guy. But yeah, I mean, I agree there's some of that, but but I mean, I, I think one of the sort of keys is they name a character Gilliam. Um, and I think one of the key references is Brazil and the mm. sort of post-apocalyptic vision that Terry Gilliam gave us back in the 80s uh, with, with that. And so, so I mean, I, I really enjoyed both this sort of just the look of the film itself, but also I think it was very canny about how it was engaging with aesthetics that are sort sort of grotesque and far out and, and sort of weirdly post-apocalyptic in ways that we don't have to believe but we can nevertheless get lost in.
2: Yeah. I thought it was really um interesting how emotionally invested I was in all of it and how how emotional the violence in it was. Because I can watch a a war movie, I can watch a slasher. The movie You're Next is like really, really gory and I cannot bat an eyelash. But the point in the film where they put that guy's arm out of the train and then they smash it with a hammer really disturbed me.
0: I freaked out. So what was it about that that made it so emotional for
2: you? I think just because you're emotionally attached to the people that the violence is happening to you know in in slasher movies, I mean the teens they're just bodies, they're not like real people, you know,
1: yeah, and without giving away too much, I mean the film gets to a point where the violence gets really extreme not 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 in the gore but just in the sheer clash of brutal humanity, and it's shot in, in a really compelling way that that i mean I, I think Shows the film's East Asian influence and sources. Um, you know, I, I was thinking, okay, yeah, this this is what um, you know, Park Chan Wook was was doing—an old boy that, that Spike Lee missed—and uh, um, this this is what um, I loved about The Host, which is also which is much more comic, but it's from the same director. Um, it's it's just this this way of doing visceral violence that most most American mainstream directors shy away from. You know, that's a
0: really interesting point uh, when you talk about Park Chan Wook, who did Stoker last year, isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and uh, this is that's true of that film, and also of Old Boy, and true of this film. Something that I, I honed in on was how realized the world was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that gets to what your point was, Stephen, about being really emotionally connected to these characters who don't necessarily have a lot of screen time, but who you feel really emotionally connected to. Um, And I was actually, I was going through the IMDb page looking up, you know, who is the names of all these people, you know, getting all the actors' names and everything. The litany of named characters in this film goes far beyond that which I remembered in the film. And they all have names. And, you know, looking back on who these people were in the film when I was doing the the names for the the film, I, I realized that these people all had backstories probably somewhere realized maybe either in the comic book that it's based on or something but the world just seemed a lot more realized than I thought at first glance and I think that might be why there was so much emotion attached why some of the people seemed more even the villains seemed more evil, or the good guys seemed a little bit more realized—not uh, necessarily good in some in some instances—but their motivations were more complex, and I thought that was a, a really strong moment. And I think that gets at some of the, uh, yeah, some. Of the, I mean, maybe it's a Korean thing uh, that that is going on there that you mentioned, old boy, and I think I think Stoker had that too. So uh, one of the things that I I honed in on a little bit about this film was how it's kind of this term that's taken off and it's called video game cinema, where you're moving from one level to the next and you're progressing towards a boss. And there's some pretty mixed feelings about the ways in which that narrative can be drawn. Did you guys think that worked for this film where they're kind of progressing? I mean, this is this is as, as straightforward as it can get. They start in the back of the train and their goal is to get to the front. Uh, and they're just making progress every, every act of the film. Did that work for you guys in terms of a narrative structure or did it detract from the film itself?
1: sometimes that structure doesn't work sometimes I think film imitating video games goes horribly awry uh, in this case I think it works extremely well I mean you know video games didn't develop that narrative uh, You know, I just actually wrote a, wrote a review about this on my website in regard to another book but but you know it's it, you know fundamentally the novel grew out of picaresque narrative you know the sort of the road narrative where each stop on the road is some sort of an episode um, and, and, and narrative is of course developed from there well that's one of the sources for the novel it's not the only source that's, that, that, that's one main major source of, of where the novel came from and of course the novel was was a serious influence on the development of film and manga and comics and so on and so forth and so and, and yes it's become dominant in video games as, as video games are vying to be the medium of the 21st century uh, and so so to see that isn't at all surprising it's a matter of can you make that narrative work in a way that makes sense to film viewers and again like you know the some of the resident evil films for example are more or less successful in doing that you know Platformer movies don't always work, but in this case, we do have those dimensions of character. The cinematography is generally much re- richer than you're liable to get out of, you know, moving the, the the right stick or whatever your 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 gaming platform of choice is. And so, it actually works in in its sort of media blend. I think.
2: How would it not be a like a as you call it a platform type movie? You know, they're stuck on a train. They can only go from one car to the next car.
0: Well, you know, I don't know. The, that's just a way that, I mean, it may be forced upon this type of film where you kind of have to progress in terms right. of one thing to the next. But sometimes that narrative structure is cause for some, some problems. When Right. Yeah. But I'm talking about this
2: movie specifically. And I think that it worked so well just because, I mean, how the hell else are you going to shoot
1: it? Where,
2: you know, where are they going to go? Yeah. They're in the train. Well, it could have been a bad movie
0: you
1: know but it well, wasn't so Link, that's good I mean we, we could for example compare this film to Under Siege 2 which I don't think is a terrible film but I would never get on the air in public and say it's awesome whereas I, I, I do think that I, you know, I'm i comfortable saying Snowpiercer is awesome same general premise okay you know the underdog on a train has to fight fight the way to the big bad but you know props to Steven Seagal I enjoy some of his work but Snowpiercer you know engaged my brain and my, my address and so many other things, whereas Under Siege mostly just m- makes me giggle. I
2: don't know. I've this is terrible, I'm sure, but I have never actually sat down and watched a Steven Seagal movie. None of them? None of them. That's
0: pretty impressive.
2: None of them. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's impressive. You know. So I do. You know, I have a degree in English, and I made it all the way to my senior year of college without having read To Kill a Mockingbird or Hamlet. That's
0: impossible. Wow! wow. Did you not graduate high school?
2: I totally did.
0: Yeah, I did graduate. I, I, I can
2: I can believe at Hamlet. right. I now know, I read those time. things in college. I did. Oh okay, I did okay. in my senior year of college. Mm. But I spent a lot of time um, in high school and college reading um, Native American literature. And African American literature, and like Haitian literature, and things like that. So,
0: did you see any of that in this movie?
2: No, I, we're getting off topic. Yes, I know, <laughs> but I'm I'm just sa- all of that to say that I don't know. Do Steven Seagal movies ever have like something legitimate to say, or are they just wham, bam, boom, Vin Diesel of the? 80s oh, oh,
1: particularly in his direct-to-video uh, Recent films. He almost always has some glaring political message that makes some sense to someone. I'm sure um, But you know, Russia is awesome mostly. Huh? <laughs> but, but 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 anyways, I just I was just bringing up another a train movie in the example of under siege Two that That, that uh, has a similar narrative structure, but does not uh, Wow, me you went there Where,
0: you went there instead of a uh, speed three I think uh, is the other big train movie when
1: speed Speed Two was on a boat. Speed Two was was cruise control on a boat. I don't even know if I knew the existence of Speed Three.
0: Yeah, I think it was uh, Dennis Hopper came back for that one. I think. did he? Hold no, me. he he was dead. I don't know. Sandra Bullock maybe. I don't know. So uh, he another- kind of had a train in the first one.
1: So there any, was a
0: bus. it a bus! It was, yeah, well, the bus was the main thing, but at the end, there's a train. Oh, there's okay. Sorry. Okay. I, I, oh yeah, that's right. Because jo- oh, yeah, there is a. You're right. There's a train. I know my so, freaky pop culture references, dude. One thing I wanted to talk about was how much I love Tilda Swinton. <laughs> we can talk about that absolutely. Yes! Well, we can talk about the performances, and and that actually gets to the point I was going to make, which was, uh, you know, I I have a, a, a working theory that I've been going on for a, probably about a decade. Of now. Of course you do. That whenever directors who English is their second language direct film in English it's sometimes a struggle especially when it's the first one and I realized this when I watched The Devil's Backbone back to back with Hellboy 2 which those are both Guillermo del Toro films but I was just so much more struck by the performances in The Devil's Backbone because I think since Guillermo del Toro's native language is is Spanish he's able to find the emotional resonance and what the people are saying a little bit better than in English and you might say that that has to do with the quality of the actors you might not be wrong um, but I think that this, this comes up over and over again in, in some of the different directors I've, I've seen. But what did you guys think about the performances in this film? To me, they did kind of feel a little flat and might have been a little bit overdone. And I'm a little bit struggling to say whether I think that's because of the film that they were making and the, uh, the kind of the, the essence that they were trying to evoke, uh, the types of emotions they were trying to say, um, trying to provoke in the whole film itself, or if it was just a, a function of the directing. Tell me what you guys thought about the the performances.
2: Well, I eat, sleep, and breathe Tilda Swinton, so uh, she can do no wrong except for that movie Constantine. But no, I'm just kidding, sort of, kind of. Not really. Not really. Yeah. I,
0: I do. I do respect how she never really looks like herself in any movie she's ever done.
2: You know what though, but I feel like she looks exactly like herself in every movie she's ever done. It, it,
1: it, it's funny uh, watching this movie last time. My partner and I were talking about it, and 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 no offense to the the actress who plays the woman in the Hunger Games, um, but I can't remember her name. But it's Elizabeth like, Banks. Yes, I was okay. So I was like, oh, they got the woman who plays Tilda Swinton in the Hunger Games, but, but they, they actually had Tilda Swinton this time. <laughs> um, right. Is and and um, you know I didn't read the review, but since I you know at least saw one review titled the Hunger train for this film there is a connection there (laughs) yes um but but yeah tilda swinton is playing tilda swinton in this film and she's awesome she is awesome
2: i like the little and and i love metaphors and allegories and all those fun things because who doesn't whenever she was giving the speech about the hat and the shoe and all of that i just really like stuff like that you know and she really got into that role and i don't know i really liked it and plus i don't know that i've ever seen a movie with Chris Evans in it before where I was just like whoa that movie really intellectually impacted me in some way (laughs) I really
0: think there's only been three and he's gonna quit after he's done making the second Avengers film I think he's done with acting oh yeah yeah he had had to have a a severe talking to by a Tony Stark Robert Downey Jr. to keep him in the game Wow, it's kind of an interesting guy. I mean, it, it, just if you're interested in humans and what they do. But yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. He's he's maybe not the the most emotionally effective guy, and I didn't really think he was in in this film either. But uh, I don't know. My favorite performance in this film was definitely Allison Pill, who played the teacher. <laughs> a yeah.
1: smaller role, but yeah, that was a good a good turn. Well, yeah,
0: I think, you know, up until that moment in the film, I was kind of not sure what the film was trying to do to do. And when you get to that point in the film and you see, there's a, you know, this isn't giving anything away about the film, but they get to a point on the train where they meet all of these children who are of the upper class and are being taught about the amazingness of their person who's the engineer of the train. And they watch a video and the teacher's just really just off the wall. And I was like, okay, I can get behind this. I see what this is trying to be now. And I thought that she was just a really good emblem of, okay. I see what this film is trying to be now and we can keep going.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they, they don't go for naturalistic acting at all. Every Everything is distorted. Everything is is, is funhouse mirror, um, which again, why I think, the, you know, Terry Gilliam is such an important touchstone for this film. Um, you know, there, there is a sort of insanity in every characterization. And I think, you know, the one person who's missing that is Chris Evans. And I, th- I think his character is there as kind of this blank page of just sort of, you know, masculine rage that pushes the plot through the, Levels of the of the video game narrative we go forward. Yeah,
2: right. He's kind of one of the least memorable people in the movie. I felt.
0: Yeah, he,
1: he has very little color. I yeah. don't think he needs it.
0: Right. It, it's kind of well, and you know, when you, if you're kind of come up with a flaw in this film, in we've we both all I think we're all saying that he's not the best character in the film, but just yeah. kind of the way in which they structured the roles of each of the people, uh, especially in the way it, the film ends up concluding. You're kind of wondering, left wondering, like who is the good guy and who is the bad guy, and and or not necessarily who is. We know who the bad guy was, but who is the real good guy, or was there a real good guy, or was everybody just destined for failure? Which maybe wasn't a flaw, maybe it was a a positive in the narrative. Because I think you are left thinking days and days later. You know who is it that we were supposed to be cheering for in this? Who is it that we're that we're rooting for? Or and this is a very fatalistic film. Are we just fated for what's going to happen to us?
1: Yeah and that's I mean I think that's a, that's a very interesting point you know I, again I think that's maybe why this film you know, may not. I don't know. I think it probably could have done better with the mainstream uh, American release, but but it is incredibly ambiguous. Right. Um, and just when you think you probably have a moral handle on what's going on, you don't. Yeah.
2: Um, I and- tend to like things like that, though. I don't like being told what it is that I should take away from something. I don't know. I I like the ambiguity. It's just like in a lot of um, science fiction or horror, which is which are genres that I really like. But I feel like there's no. It was okay okay with science fiction or horror it's usually I really really loved it or I just really couldn't stand it because I hate it whenever everything is explained and wrapped up in a tiny little bow and then sat in front of you and it's like here you go this is the end of the story I just don't like that whenever I don't understand or I don't have a finite complete answer to it that's always what makes me more nervous
1: yeah it it makes a difference between you know what you said you know whether a movie's going to to stay with you or not so some movies are meant to divert you for a couple of hours and and some some movies do something else this movie does something else okay well i think that's a good place to leave it one the
0: one question we always end with here when i'm in this chair is who would you recommend go see this film so steven we'll start with you who do you think needs to go see snowpiercer on a you mean on like on a general level yeah like if if you who would you recommend go see the movie
2: i don't know, I think that it would be a good movie for some of your college students to see. I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack there. I don't think I would ever recommend anyone from like my family or anything to go see it because they would probably be um, detached or they wouldn't get it or you know so casual film goers maybe not as much but interested in film but well and not to say not to say that you have to be like a film buff you know where you call them films instead of movies or whatever but you have to be able to sit down for a serious movie that is thought provoking and I feel like you kind of have to go into it being willing to think
1: yeah, and I, I, I agree with that completely, but at the same time, and, and this is not to compare the storylines at all, but, but you know, The Matrix went over really, really well with American audiences. And The Matrix is, is practically a, a, a an anthology of philosophy uh, um, crammed into a really exciting uh, a sci-fi narrative. And so if you enjoy science fiction that also isn't afraid to, to make you think and, and leave some gray spaces for moral judgment, then uh, this movie's going gonna to satisfy you because it's well made at least most of the acting is pretty good while i did see some of the twists coming i didn't see them all coming and for someone who watches as many thousands of movies as i watch that's something all right well there you go
0: i think we have three thumbs up all around for snowpiercer
2: do not want war
0: This sequel to 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes picks up a decade after Caesar leads his faction of apes into the California wilderness outside of San Francisco. Meanwhile, Gary Oldman and Jason Clarke, who played Dreyfus and Malcolm, are trying to revive electricity in that city. This film is an exploration in tribalism as ape and man both mistrust each other. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was directed by Matt Reeves, was written by Mark Bomback, Rick Jaffa, and several others, was shot by Michael Saracen, and was edited by William Hoy and Stan Salfus. So, okay. Same question to start off. Did you guys like the movie? I don't know.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I can tell you that I liked Rise of the Planet of the Apes better. He's um, a big fan of James Franco? I mean, I like James Franco, okay? I, I don't... I, he's not Tilda Swinton, you know? But I don't know. Maybe maybe it's because I went to see it at 10.30 p.m. on a Saturday night, but part of it, I just was like, is this Dawn of the Planet of the Apes or is this Yawn of the Planet of the Apes? Okay. And, I, yeah, there you go. Your what about turn. you,
1: Dr. Cooper? Um, I... Liked it. I didn't love it. I liked it. I Actually, liked it more than Rise. And, and though I do agree that you know J- James Franco is, is not Tilda Swinton, um, nor should he ever be. But- he doesn't look as good in clothes as she does.
2: <laughs> That's true. That went somewhere that I didn't want it you to. Didn't. I'm sorry. There you go. I did not intend that. Well, that was wholesome. I promise. I, I would of course.
0: Say, you know, I think if you can set aside the fact that we're again in this universe. And instead think of if they had made this movie instead of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Cats, I would have liked it a lot more because I just just think of Charlton Heston. And again, like, why are we here? But if I set that aside, I can think of, you know, this is an interesting meditation on what's going on. And I I think it was a, a worthwhile endeavor in terms of of looking at the movie that way.
1: Well, oh, I mean, I'll I'll say this, and actually, I think I think maybe one one of the reasons that, that that some people probably might find it a bit of a honor, um, but something that actually impressed me about it is that I think the apes get significantly more screen time than humans, mm-hmm. uh, and so they're for like traditional audience identification, it might be a difficult film uh, because you spend most of your time watching people who aren't you. But they're still kind of people, right. uh, and, and and so it lacks that sort of you know human protagonist James Franco character to hold on to throughout the film, and that I think is a big risk for a mainstream film to take, um, and so I respect it for that reason.
2: I kind of liked that aspect of it, yeah. And I liked the sign language hmm. and the subtitles, and and I don't know, maybe I just like films with subtitles,
0: maybe. God. Well, I don't know. I think it was a big. It, I definitely agree that it was a big risk. But I think it was maybe more muted, or maybe this was the first time that we're able to take that kind of a risk because we're able to get such a photorealistic version of these apes. I, I mean, that was something you can't. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You probably can dispute it, but I would, di- I would argue with you too, I'm blue in the face that this is the most um, impressive technical achievement I've seen in a film in four years in terms of just showing or, or making the technology work with the narrative and the film itself mm-hmm. in terms of the way that these apes are able to convey emotion and to be able to connect with an audience. Sure, they're not human, but I think they're as close as you can get, maybe at all, while not quite being human.
1: I agree. I agree. The rendering of the apes is excellent. Um, visually, I wasn't very impressed with much else in the film. I mean, there's some, some great uh, cinematography, you know, simulating Northern California, um, or, and, and capturing Northern California as well. But but yeah, I agree. The, the, the apes are ex- exceptionally well rendered. Otherwise, I felt that, that there, was, there wasn't a lot that was inspired about the way it was shot. Mm.
0: I kind of agree with Steven, though, in terms of this film. I don't know. I wouldn't say it was the yawn of the Planet of the Apes, but I do think it went a little bit long. I'm given yeah. to
2: hyperbole, I apologize.
0: That's, that's fair enough. No, it it
1: breaks two hours. It's
0: long. Yeah, it breaks two hours and I you know, I don't mind if a movie is long, but I the the narrative is stretched. Right. And I think that they have all this stuff and they want to have it all blow up and that's fine. And you know, there's people that go see movies because they're like, you know, I don't want to see a meditation on the interaction between different tribes of society. I want to go see some apes fight some humans and some... Uh, I want to see an ape riding a horse shooting an AK-47. And there's some people that are in the theater to see that. And they and, came to the wrong movie.
2: Well, it does happen. There's... I mean, it happens, but it's
0: not very... got to sit through an hour and 40 minutes mm-hmm. of, uh, of, you know, meditation on uh, how people interact right. with one another before you get to the... The guy riding on a, a, not a guy, an ape riding on a horse shooting a gun.
2: And length, I mean, length doesn't typically, oh God, length doesn't (laughs) typically bother me, but um, (laughs) sorry, I'm totally going all like middle school with this, I apologize, but, you know, I've seen Metropolis-
1: Mm -hmm. And you know,
2: that's four, five hours long, something. It's long.
1: The the, the most recent cut is two hours, 20 minutes, I think.
2: Well, there's some... No, there's like this Metropolis Restored thing that I swear is like four hours plus long. That's one of the
0: ones that they've lost that they have like a, you know, there's... Trust me They can put... Okay,
2: I mean, I don't... Okay, that's fine. But then... And I'm like, Cloud Atlas, I loved that movie. I thought that was good. I Uh, didn't see. And... And it was, you know, three-plus hours long. It was. And that didn't bother me at all. And it was an hour longer than this movie so was. So what
0: was it about this film that, that made it feel long to you?
2: I don't know. I just feel like there wasn't a whole lot going on. And, and I, maybe, it, maybe it was because it was so meditative. But I've seen other movies that were meditative that I
0: thought worked. Hmm. I don't know maybe I, you know to me I thought that the meditative pieces or the kind of the, the parts about the interaction between the humans and the apes and, and who trusts whom and, and you know even the way that that resolved in the middle of the third act of the film in the midst of all the the crazy violence and horses and apes and guns and spears and all the, all of that that was going on the resolution of that, of that narrative of you know I was Caesar and his coming to realization I thought that that, that story was something I was interested in I just I wasn't as I wasn't all in on the uh, the shooting and like, whatever, if that's if that's what you're there to see. It's not a bad film about that. But I thought it kind of got in the way of the film that they were trying to make.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I agree that there's a bit too much of it. Uh, you know, they, they make the point. And then they make the point again, and then they make the point again, and then they make the point again. And by by the third or fourth time, it's like, okay, I'm ready for the movie to move on. <laughs> um, but that's that said, you know, again, there's still plenty to like about the film. I, you know, I, I don't think I don't think it's going to be be uh, remembered as, as as one of the great science fiction adventure films of of the decade. But it is it is an interesting extension of the narrative, and and I'm curious to see since they are almost definitely setting themselves up to continue the franchise um, when and if they're going to converge with Planet of the Apes. Um, Because, I mean, if anything, it's more of a prequel to the 60s Charlton Heston version as opposed to the, the Tim Burton reboot. But at the same time, they've already changed the narrative enough that it can't be that either. And one of the points that I was going to make about Snowpiercer earlier is that Snowpiercer ended up really reminded me of Beneath the Planet of the Apes mm-hmm. um, because Whoa. there's a bit in yeah. Snowpiercer where the humans are worshipping technology. Yeah. And that is, of course, where where the original Planet of the Apes series goes with the fate of humanity. And there, there are little hints of that maybe being where humanity is going in this film as well. And so, I mean, there, there's a lot of potential, just not enough of his realized in the two hours and seven minutes or whatever the runtime is.
0: Well, you know, that gets it to kind of the... Actually, my main criticism of the 2011 film, which also continues to be my criticism of this one, which is why does it need to exist in that either one of those places? I, there was, I remember in 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes, there's just a moment where a, a newspaper in the midst of like, the insanity that's happening around them rolls by some people running around that just says, spacecraft lost... Or something and I was like why 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 do we care about that that's not that's not what we're watching in this film we don't need to know that seven movies down the road they're gonna remake Planet of the Apes and they're gonna have Statue of Liberty Sorry, spoilers for forty years later, but uh, you know that why do we need that? And again, that happens again this time where we set ourselves up for um, the film where the film feels fatalistic. It feels like we know it's going to happen. It's called Rise of the or excuse me, it's called Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. We know it's going to be the Planet of the Apes, and it has that kind of fatalistic tone to it, which I think that kind of detracts from what's happening with it around it. Which obviously, it's done a killing at the box office this weekend, ended number one, and made almost eighty million dollars and you know, there's going, there's almost certainly going to be a third one, especially with, I I mean, I think that this is certainly going to get a nomination for an Oscar in terms of some of the technical categories. And I would be surprised if it didn't win. So it's, it's going to continue, but I just kind of, I, I think that there's some stuff here that is worthwhile to look at outside of 40 years ago, Charlton Heston made a movie with monkeys in it and, you know, get your hands off of me. But that's just kind of how I feel about it. Obviously that's, a strong reaction for <laughs> for such a movie, but what what are you going to do? I guess we can we can talk some, some more about some other stuff. But uh, do you re- who would you recommend go see the movie Doctor Cooper?
1: I don't see. I like the I like stories that get retold in a way that fits with their times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think anybody who's been invested in the Planet of the Apes saga at any point, and in its, in it's now 50-year history, um, should check it out. Mm. And, and like I said, I don't love it, but it's it's, it's an interesting piece of, of post-apocalyptic science fiction. And, and there's a reason why the market is flooded with post-apocalyptic science fiction right now.
0: Absolutely. So Stephen, what about you?
2: I guess, I mean, I would agree with that. I think that a lot of the people who are going to see it already have some sort of expectation set up for it because it is part of the Planet of the Apes franchise. I do think there will be some people to go see it who want to see... An ape on a horse toting a gun, and they will be somewhat disappointed by the lack of action, except for the last twenty minutes.
0: Maybe Stephen, the better question for you is not necessarily a "Who should go see it," <laughs> but when should they go see when it? When should they go see it? Maybe it should be like in the afternoon on a Saturday, as opposed to like the middle of the
2: night. Probably, probably, maybe. I mean, I, I could have gone and seen it in the middle of the day and just fell in love with it. Who knows? who knows? Maybe, maybe it was just the fact that I went to see it so late. But and now I feel like I'm. I'm saying that it was just this like terrible movie because I don't think it was I think it was I think it was good It just wasn't great. It didn't emotionally affect me the way that snowpiercer did
1: I agree with that
2: and and, well to me not that it was trying to either I don't think Mm. but
0: I I remember in 2011 when rise of the planet of the apes came out and just having a really horrible reaction to I can't believe James Franco is such a weirdo and is making this movie And I went to go see it and I was just shocked at how good it was and so I probably came into this film with a little bit higher expectations than I than I needed to, given that it's, it's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. But, um, you know, I did kind of expect the quality to to be there from 2011, and I wasn't all that disappointed. I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was worthwhile to go see. And I, I do tend to agree with Dr. Cooper. Anybody that's interested in this type of film and this genre of, of thinking about things and, and uh, is maybe attached to... The planet of the ape story at some point it, you're going to find something in this that you like so if this is the type of thing that you were already interested in going to see i think that you're going to be satiated maybe that's a good way to put it okay well i think we do have some time to to talk about maybe one or two of these stories
2: we mankind have progressed so far
1: We live in a time of endless possibility. From such humble beginnings, through the astonishing modern world in which we now live. More has been learned about the treatment of the human body in the last five years than was learned in the previous 500. forward into a hopeful
0: future. Cinemax, along the bastion of late-night softcore pornography, is yes! into the game of scripted television now. It's going to bring Steven Soderbergh's The Nick to the screen. The first season is entirely Soderbergh's vision. He directed all ten episodes, which are currently complete and will begin airing in August. Mm. Cinemax, however, has already renewed the show for a second season, which will also be entirely directed by Soderbergh. Many thought that Nick would be headed to a major cable station such as HBO, Showtime, or even Netflix. But Soderbergh said he felt most comfortable on Cinemax, where he could be, quote, the big kid at a small school, unquote. The show is going to feature Clive Owen and will begin airing on August 8th. So I didn't talk anything about the plot of the show in this, but it's about a, it's about a hospital, um, and it's a hospital at the turn of the century, and this is the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York that uh, kind of pioneered a lot of 20th century... Uh, techniques for surgery and hospital care that ended up saving a lot of lives but in the meantime killed a lot of people. So that's the idea behind the show. Are you guys interested in all in a Steven Soderbergh-directed television show really 10-hour teleplay starring Clive Owen on Cinemax. Is that something you're going to seek out and find?
2: I think it sounds interesting. I really like the idea of one director directing an entire season uh, just so that it all kind of flows together. And I think that's like a relatively new thing, right? I mean,
0: So I can add a little bit of color to that. So there's been two things that this television season uh, I would point to to say that that would be different examples of, of different things. Noah Hawley who is involved in the showrunner for Fargo, who didn't direct any of the episodes, but each, uh, there were five directors, 10 episodes, two episodes per director, but they were fully formed by Noah Hawley, versus True Detective, which aired on HBO, and was entirely written by Nick Pizzolatto, and all 10 were directed by Carrie Fukunagua, who also directed the Jane Eyre film from 2011. Carrie Fukunagua has since come out and said, that was an insane thing that I did, and I would never do that again, and I would recommend no one do that ever again. Steven Soderbergh has 10 episodes in the can, is already saying... I'm down to do ten more. But Steven Soderbergh's kind of crazy,
1: but Soderbergh—I mean, his productivity in his career is is matched by very few, particularly in, in getting critical respect uh, at, at the same time. I mean, you know, sure, you know, no one beats Roger Corman, but at the same time, you know, it's, it takes someone like me to love Roger Corman. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Soderbergh—Soderbergh Soderbergh wants to do it. Soderbergh can do whatever the heck he, Soderbergh wants. For me, he's hit or miss. So, so I'm intrigued, but I'm going to wait to see some trailers to see what it looks like. Cleveland's wins a plus, too. He's talented and he's creepy. So so I'm intrigued, actually, the comparison to True Detective. I hadn't realized that it was one one director for all the episodes, but wow, that show had one of the best atmospheres I have ever encountered on television. So if part of that is having a singular Helms person, that is an experiment worth repeating. Sure.
0: Well, you know, the, th- the interesting thing for me is you mentioned Steven Soderbergh being hit or miss. I think that's true of everyone, including Steven Soderbergh. Um, being hit or miss. So I, I, I think that that's something that he's not afraid to do. He's not afraid to miss. He's It's all about taking swings and seeing what works, and he'll have an MMA fighter in one of his films, and he'll have a softcore pornography actress in one of his... No, hardcore pornography actress in one of her, his films, and he'll do he'll do crazy things and just see if it works, and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, and he's not really afraid of that. This, I think, is an interesting experiment because, you know, Kiri Fukunaga said it was crazy to do 10 episodes. Uh, this was a... T- then True Detective was 10 episodes in the can. It's done. Uh, it could have been thought of as a teleplay, like a mini series, 10 episodes with these characters and we're moving on to the next one. This is 10 episodes by one director, but it's not a 10-hour film. It's not a 10-hour story that we're telling. This is 10 hours followed by... 10 more hours, perhaps followed by 10 more hours after that. This is not something that's cut off, which I think is something that's very interesting. Uh, We talked a little bit on the last episode that we did about Fargo and how they were able to bring in some characters and do some stuff because the narrative was closed off. They were able to fully form some characters and take them off the board and and not have to necessarily kill them, just take them off the board because they just weren't going to come back because the show was over. Um, which is not something you're necessarily going to be able to do here. So I think there's some interesting elements in play. From a business standpoint, Cinemax is elated to get this show on their air. Is this something that's going to make you check to see if you have Cinemax first because you might not have done that before? uh, Or would you actually seek out Cinemax to get something like this to watch it?
2: I don't have cable, and I don't plan on getting cable, so... I'm not going to seek out Cinemax because of the show, but I definitely think I might seek out the show okay. in whatever capacity I could get it.
0: So if Cinemax is able to, you know, because they make money when they they put the show on Hulu or, mm-hmm. or you know uh, Netflix or wherever that it ends up going, they they make money that way. So you you would seek it out to do it that way.
2: I would watch it for sure. I think it sounds interesting.
1: Yeah, uh, I'll probably check it out on demand. Cinemax is bundled with HBO and Showtime and Movie right. Channel with me. So, exactly.
2: if you own HBO Go, do you get Cinemax?
0: I think so,
1: it depends. I think it usually depends on your on your bundle.
0: Cinemax is owned by HBO. Yeah, uh, and so I I don't I don't know if you if one comes with the other because I don't my my girlfriend gets HBO so that works for me, but uh, right. I don't I don't know if one comes with the other. But I'm I'm gonna probably check out to see if we can watch the show. I'm interested to see where it goes, and I think I'm going to go at it with uh, the same gusto that I go with at every Steven Soderbergh project, which is this is, has the potential to be something really stupid, but it could be something awesome.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Good attitude. Are you or someone you love 50, 100, or even 200 pounds overweight? then you better call Saul. Have fast food restaurants tricked you into an unhealthy lifestyle with their ads, their dollar menus, and their colorful banners? I'm Saul Goodman, and I have the highest dollar per pound recovery ratio in Bernalillo County. Any trainer will tell you there's four ways to lose weight. Diet, exercise, the lap band, and a fat legal suit. Just listen to this guy. This is me before I called Saul. I was 300 pounds, I had lost my job, and I was impotent. This is me after the Saul Goodman plan. Thanks, Saul. So put down the muffins and pick up the phone. Just remember to take the fries out of your mouth before you call so we can understand what you're saying. You don't have to swallow injustice anymore.
0: Call me, Saul Goodman, today. Opinions about the existence of Breaking Bad spinoff Better Call Saul have been mixed since it was announced that the show even existed. While we have known for a while that Saul Goodman would be reprised by Bob Odenkirk and that Vince Gilligan would be helming the show, we now know more details. AMC released the following synopsis recently. The series is set six years before Saul Goodman meets Walter White. When we meet him, the man who will become Saul Goodman is known as Jimmy McGill, a small-time lawyer searching for his destiny and, more immediately, hustling to make ends meet. Working alongside and often against Jimmy is fixer Mike Ehrmantraut, a beloved character also introduced in Breaking Bad. The series will track Jimmy's transformation into Saul Goodman, the man who puts criminal in Criminal Lawyer. The series' tone is dramatic, woven with dark humor. Okay, so that leaves many I think, thinking the same thoughts they struggled with before. Whether to be excited for the things, more things that are associated with the Breaking Bad or feel full that something which, which many consider to be perfect would be sullied. So, first of all, are any of you guys Breaking Bad people? I quite enjoyed it. I've
2: you? never watched it.
0: Steven. I oh, know, I'm so bad. And to be fair, like, I am, not, I, I am not all the way done with the show. I'm not, I'm the person who uh, has... I'm slack. still I'm still chugging
2: through Star Trek and Mad Men. That's Star Trek. Star Trek. That's like
0: the 90s, man. No, no, like the 60s, man. Well, the good stuff's in the 90s. Oh, hell but, no. <laughs> the as the the other co the co host that that you uh, know the oldest the person
1: in the room dreams. suddenly starts to fade. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he, he does. He's a the biggest Breaking Bad fan in the entire world and has been out on break on Better Call Saul since the beginning of the show. Who? Uh, Chris, the other person who typically does the show. Um, and so he he says there's nothing that can bring me in on this show at all. So, Doctor Cooper, since you like Breaking Bad, if you see the synopsis, this is make it more. Or less likely that you will check out Better Call Saul.
1: I gotta admit, I'm not that intrigued by it. I don't buy the idea that making another text set in the same world as a text that you love somehow sells the text that you love. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't think Breaking Bad is going to be hurt by this show in some way. I mean, so what? You know, I mean, it's just like people who don't like fan fiction. Whatever. It actually helps the primary text. You know, Breaking Bad will sell more copies because. That it also exists, even if the show sucks. So I, I don't buy that argument. As for the show, I, you know, there are so many lawyer shows out there that it just doesn't have as as distinct a premise as Breaking Bad had. So I don't imagine it being as successful. But then again, a lot of Breaking Bad success had to do with style um, and Bryan Cranston. They're not going to have Bryan Cranston, but if they got style, it could work. They're not going to have Aaron Paul either. That's true. I, no, 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 no slight to him. He was good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I think... You know, Bob Odenkirk is having a little bit of a moment here. he was He was in Fargo. We mentioned that already. he was He was great in that, I thought. Um, he's been in a couple of other things. I think he's he's in a, a movie coming up here shortly. I shouldn't have mentioned that because I can't remember what it is. But I would challenge you a little bit and say, you know, just because a different text exists within the same universe, uh, I would say that the the existence of the prequel Star Wars movies kind of hurt the original trilogy. I would say that people don't look on those as fondly as they did in the in the 90s before those came out. And also, the comedy, How I Met Your Mother, when it ended, the last episode was so bad that I think it kind of ruined the rest of it for everybody and reframed the narrative in a way that nobody really liked it. I think that's kind of what people are afraid of seeing happen. You don't think that there's a potential for for that kind of problem to occur? <laughs>
1: Yes, there's always that potential. I wasn't saying that fans don't react that way. I just think that there's not a particularly well-thought-out way to react. Because, you know, it's like... Star Wars is the same movie it was before The Phantom Menace. You know, A New Hope is the same movie it was before The Phantom Menace. So if you love A New Hope and you hate a fa- The Phantom Menace, just pretend The Phantom Menace doesn't exist and keep loving A New Hope and get over yourself. Yeah. Um and, and, and that's fine. That's a fair that's a fair assessment. And the same would be true of uh, of these two television series. It would bother me more if in the prequel I mean, and Phantom Menace and, and company did this but but you know it sort of rewrites the rules so that, that that somehow what happens in Breaking Bad is invalidated mm-hmm. That would annoy me. But then again, I would just pretend that at that point that show would cease to exist for me Okay, oh, that's fair. I, I
0: think that takes a lot of discipline as a watcher But I think that's something we should expect of people to, who uh, engage in media like that.
1: So you can right, choose. I guess You're can... in
0: charge of what you see and what you like. Yeah. So if you right. don't like it, screw them. That's a good, I think that's a good note to end on. Be a good listener. Be a good watcher. Do all, the, do all those things well. All right, guys. Thank you very much for joining me. We talked about a lot of good stuff, and I hope everybody who's listening enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's episode of Sound on Film. Find more about the topics discussed in this episode via our show notes located at wfpl.org reach out via Facebook and Twitter where you'll find us as sound on film wFpl and please email me with any comments or questions as well as topic or interview ideas at film at wfpl.org as always special thanks to House Band discount guns I'm your host Chris Ritter this is sound on film signing off